0: Coming back from the dead can be rough. In the Envoy Corps, they teach you to let go before storage, stick it in neutral, and float. It's the first lesson, and the trainers drill it into you from day one. Hard-eyed Virginia Vidara, dancer's body poised inside the shapeless core coveralls as she paced in front of us in the induction room. Don't worry about anything, she said, and you'll be ready for it. A decade later, I met her again in a holding pen at the new Kangawa Justice Facility. She was going down for eighty to a century, excessively armed robbery and organic damage. The last thing she said to me when they walked her out of the cell was, Don't worry kid, they'll store it. She bent her head to light a cigarette drew the smoke hard into her lungs she no longer gave a damn about, and set off down the corridor as if to a tedious briefing. From the angle of vision afforded me by the cell gate, I watched the pride in that walk, and whispered the words to myself like a mantra. Don't worry. They'll store it. It was a superbly double-edged piece of street wisdom, bleak faith in the efficiency of the penal system, and a clue to the elusive state of mind required to steer you past the rocks of psychosis. Whatever you feel, whatever you're thinking, Whatever you are when they store you, that's what you'll be when you come out. With high states of anxiety, that can be a problem, so you let go, stick it in neutral, disengage, and float. If you have time. Welcome to The Archetypist, the
1: only analytics-based genre fiction podcast.
0: In today's episode, we're looking at Altered Carbon by Richard K. Morgan, but before we get started, we'd like to thank our first sponsor on Patreon, Hieronymus Hawks, I think I'm saying that correctly, whose first novel, Effacement, was just released in January. So of course, all our listeners should go check that out. It's on Amazon, I just looked it up. And if you'd like to support us, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com archetypist. So... Kathleen, Altered Carbon, Yes, you want to give a brief synopsis. I will, uh, but
1: first, I think you mentioned before, which is super cool, that effacement has a serendipitous connection to Altered Carbon, which is that some of the technology is the same. There's maybe a neural chip. I don't know. We didn't get to read this book yet, but we'll, we'll give you guys our a review next time. Um...
0: Yeah, it's 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 like a neural chip. I I haven't read it yet. I I've, I've I have I have it, it's in my cart on Amazon. Very
1: cool. Very cool. So, Alter Carbon, this book won the Philip K Dick Award in 2003, but I think most people will recognize it from the Netflix series that came out a couple of years ago. They had some pretty cool ads, some pretty cool aesthetics. I will again out myself as someone who doesn't really watch much TV, so I haven't seen any of the Netflix series, but maybe maybe one day.
0: Yeah. I saw one episode, it was, I, I, I liked it, but it was pretty loud. Um, and Ben was having trouble sleeping at that point. So I didn't watch any more of it, but I'd like to go back and watch more. Definitely. Yeah, I have some friends um, that really
1: enjoyed it. Uh, there was a graphic novel yeah. too, apparently. So if that's more your speed, you could check that out.
0: Yeah, I, I I was unaware of the graphic novel, but why don't we talk about why we chose this book?
1: Yes. So the synopsis for this book generally is that um, they call it humans have a cortical stack in their spine, so that's like a small computer that has downloaded the human consciousness, which is an interesting common trope in a lot of science fiction, not just cyberpunk, which is you know the subgenre for this story, where the Entire mind, uh, intelligence, memories, etc. can be downloaded into a computer chip and then uploaded somewhere else, whether that's into a robot, into another body, uh, which is the case in Altered Carbon. Um, And I think uh, what's really interesting about this book is that it really plays with the concept of immortality. So if you are aging in your body you can move to a younger body but the catch is common in a lot of cyberpunk books is that you're really only able to do that if you're rich so there's a huge kind of class divide theme in this book which you'll find in in a lot of stories in this subgenre
0: yeah and that's kind of my impression of cyberpunk is that it's it it kind of um speaks to a lot of um like economic I guess problems with, I've, I've heard described like the genre of cyberpunk as intrinsically anti-capitalist. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Um, I, I could, I could see that. What's interesting about cyberpunk is that it's usually about the distant future. So I can see, um, Neuromancer is is a lot like that. Also, um, Tom Sweaterlich's book Tomorrow and Tomorrow addresses those themes. Um, it's not just about the economic aspects. I think it's also about the general social aspects the word "punk" in cyberpunk implies a resistance to society, like a authority. Resistance like, to authority, like punk, yeah. Um, and c- punk music and cyber is the um, aesthetic, if you will. So yeah. biopunk tends to be more like Scott Westerfield's Leviathan, which is a really interesting example of a biopunk book combined with, I guess it's a. I, w- I don't know what you would call it, but it's like mech warriors on one side, and then you have the Darwinists on the other side who have their hyper-evolved animals, and it's an uh, alternate history with World War One. Very good book. Highly recommend it. But um,
0: Military almost, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I would say that this book, Altered Carbon, is a cross between cyberpunk with a lot of the computer oriented aesthetics, the artificial intelligence themes, etc. with biopunk because you can switch between sleeves, as they call it. You can switch between bodies. I think there's a scene in the show, the Netflix show, where a mind gets put into a snake. So it's very much playing with the computers and playing with the um, bodies at the same time. Um, which makes for a uh, really interesting, and we'll get into this, really interesting conversations about what you can do once you outline a high concept in your story. Yeah, um,
0: yeah this book, I, I think it kind of embodies the uh, <laughs> kind of the exercise that we did last time where you take one part of the world and push it to its extreme and see like, you know, how can we commit crimes with this, which is always like a good basis for a story. And we kind of see that here is like the re and and the stack is, is, is really uh, central to the the story. One thing that I, I found interesting that we haven't really talked about yet um, is the, I, I think at one point I would have called it anti-Catholic because Kathleen and I, we're both, we're both Catholic. But I, I honestly thought that the church, just seeing how people have reacted to this current crisis and how we've reacted to things that are like commonplace, like vaccines, um, or at least people that I know in the church who've reacted that way, I honestly didn't find the book to be perhaps as offensive towards Catholics. I I once might have thought of. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that.
1: I think that it portrays Catholics as people with anti-cultural, deeply held beliefs, which isn't inaccurate.
0: No, I can definitely see. I mean, like just looking at church, at the official church teaching for many things right now, I can definitely see if we were in a society. Where we like could be resleeved where the church would have a social doctrine that said, don't do that.
1: Yeah, my, um, my future brother in law is a priest, so I'll have to ask him what he imagines the church teaching would be in this actual scenario and whether or not it would be consistent with what appears in the book. Uh, but I think I think countercultural is probably the word that I that I should use before that. that I hate that. I word. know, but it is the most accurate. Um, but another theme, just to kind of uh, change pace a little bit, another theme that we wanted to talk about when you're looking at the overall subgenre of cyberpunk in this book is that cyberpunk. Which is the, the book that I'm writing right now. It's part of the reason why I chose the subgenre of the book I'm writing right now. It's part of the reason why we chose altered carbon to read. It's very similar to noir or hard boiled detective stories, which is something that Jacob knows about. Um, yeah. so I think that we we talked before a little bit in, in our Previous episodes about the theme of having an outsider come to the world. And so people explain things to them that you get their unique perspective on it, which is a good natural seeming way to introduce things to the reader. But overall, the idea of being an outsider is very common in noir stories, the protagonists are usually conflicted, drug addicted. They're on the fringes of society. They're very downtrodden. And there's other themes that you see in this book, like being hired by a rich man, the femme fatale who tries to seduce him, the tough woman cop, and prostitutes, like so many prostitutes.
0: <laughs> you had that quote from uh series right? I don't know if you want to read that.
1: Yeah, um, let me pull that up real quick. So K-Series Wright is an author that Jacob went to grad school with. Yeah. And um, she has this essay that I absolutely love because it really personifies a lot of the things that we want to do with this podcast, which is when you read this piece, you can just tell how well-versed she is in this genre of cyberpunk. Or it's a subgenre What's of What's the essay called? It yeah. is called Cyberpunk Remastered, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Postmodernism.
0: And if I'm not mistaken, that's in the Many Genres Run Craft book. Yes, it is. Put up by Seton Hill? Yes, it is. Okay, cool.
1: And she describes in this essay the things that she loves about the story, uh, about the genre. And and you can just tell she's distilled it down into its themes. And so if you want to write a cyberpunk essay, it's a must read because you really start to get to the the key pieces of it. So here's how she described um, a little bit of that overlap between cyberpunk and the noir. She calls cyberpunk a corrupted world with no moral certainty, populated by cynical characters. Classic cyberpunk often maintains a somber tone reminiscent of noir fiction, which reflects the dreary landscape. Cyberpunk protagonists are usually drug-using or physically enhanced males living on the fringe of society. They live by their wits in a black market existence, often placed in situations they did not bring about or made fantastical offers they have no logical reason to refuse, other than on a moral basis. But antiheroes are often morally ambiguous in their rebellion against an oppressive society or quest to achieve personal ends.
0: And I think that that quote, I mean, it kind of illustrates the difference between noir fiction and cyberpunk because... As as someone who's read a fair bit of noir, um, usually the the noir protagonists are people who have, like, a heart of gold, who are just kind of, like, beaten down by society and in poor situations. Like, for example, Harry Dresden does a lot of things that, like, might, if looked at in a vacuum, it would make him a bad person. Um, The same thing with uh, with Philip Marlowe um, from The Big Sleep. While he does things that might make him a bad person, he also, like, sacrifices himself for his family, the people he loves and just random people in Chicago. He like has an over, you know, it's not even an over respect. He just has a, a huge respect for like human life and like what should and shouldn't happen to people. I mean, like in one of the, um, the, the sequel Marlow books, um, he actually forfeits a contract in order to save uh, the woman that he was, um, Contracted to find because uh, he realizes that she that she's run away from an abusive relationship. I think it's it's been a while since I've read that one. But um, so it's just interesting to see how how Kovacs is is a little bit different than the typical noir protagonist, but I think this is a good segue into some of the more problematic aspects of the book. I know that we yeah. want to talk about,
1: I think before we talk about this, it's important to recognize a theme in the book that you were mentioning before, which is that the body is no longer the self mm, because yeah. the cortical stack is, is really the self. Um, there's, there's a fantastic um, rule, if you will, in cyberpunk fiction, which is that you have to learn the vocabulary because the world is so different, we speak about it differently now. So the stack is, you know, the small computer that contains the consciousness. The sleeve is the body. Um, they they use synths, which is a synthetic body, because it's not just, you know, we we don't have to grow, you know, bodies in test tubes anymore. It's, you know, we can, you know, make synthetic ones. Um, but because that they they use the term also one one more. Um, illustrative vocabulary word for this point is they call it real death real death rd real death is when i destroy your sack you're really (laughs) dead you're really not coming back um and we both kind of agreed independently that uh, it makes sense that there are a lot of instances of intense violence in this book um Kovac kills many sleeves, but not just sleeves. He inflicts real death on many people. Because he has, yeah. you know, he's he's an envoy. He has a lot of military training. He kind of has no heart, as, as Jacob is saying. But there are certain scenes in the book where, there's one in particular where he is captured and being tortured. And so he's sleeved into the body of a woman to inflict a certain kind of... And, and, and this is a trigger psychological trauma. I mean this is a trigger warning, not so much for a conversation maybe, it depends on you know your your own you know personal boundaries, but also especially for the book. Um you know, we remind our readers that I like to call these uh, conversations spoiler flavored. Well, we're going to analyze the whole book and talk about events and things that we can learn from that happen throughout it um, but also if you're planning to read this book but haven't gotten to it yet um, it's there's a lot of parts that are very disturbing especially for um, you know someone like myself as, as a woman um, because there's sexual trauma inflicted as part of the torture that's you know purely seems to be inflicted. In, in a particularly invasive way that only women can feel. And so to sleeve him temporarily to a woman just for this purpose of exhibiting this specific trauma, I really didn't see a purpose for it in the book. It seemed very misogynist to me. And both Jacob and I, we read some articles where the author, you know, Richard K. Morgan, he's done a lot of work against domestic violence. And, you know, he did some interviews where he talked about he wrote this book as a angry reaction to the way that, you know, women you know, were being treated in places throughout the world. But I think ultimately he's made a piece of art that's very misogynist. Because people who read this, they, you know, can get a kick out of that if they also have these angry feelings against women. And effectively, I, I, I just can't find the intention being carried out in a way that can be justified. You no,
0: know, I I don't. I mean, obviously, like, there's a visceral reaction to that particular scene, because not only like, it's it's implied not only that she's being tortured, but it's that. They willingly put him in a body that, like, there's some really shady science. I mean, that was referenced. Like, I don't know. At one point, they were like, "Oh, well, women experience more pain than men. They have a higher pain tolerance." And it's like, well, I mean, I, you know, that I, I don't. I'm not a biologist. I don't really like comment on that because someone will probably correct me. But that just seems to me that uh, I'm not sure, you know, about that particular line. I, I talked to a friend of mine, uh, Sarah Tantlinger. She just actually won the yeah, the Bram Stoker Award for her poetry, um, The Devil's Dreamland. And I reached out to her because I I wanted to know what her opinion was because she clearly, like, she writes horror, and H.H. H. Holmes, which is the serial killer which Devil's Dreamland was based off of, is was a sadistic serial killer and did a lot of terrible things to just bodies in general. And she said that her, her litmus test is... To ask the question, is this expressing an insight into something that someone outside of your body will never know? Or is this just to arouse shock? And honestly, like Kovach, he doesn't really go back. It, it doesn't really traumatize him. He just kind of, it's never even referenced for the rest of the novel. I mean, yeah, he goes back and immediately kills the people who did it to him. And like, there's like some sort of vague, you know, justice part of it. And like, yeah, but I mean, it was, was it justice or pretty is pretty visceral. Revenge? Well, yeah, I mean that's the big I guess that's a question too, like is revenge justice, and that's a whole other theme we can explore, but the problem is uh that I don't think that it it was necessarily needed I mean, if you were to put a male body in the position of that female body and the same things that were done to the females was done to the male, it would be just as traumatizing like. There's no need for that sort of re-sleeving, I guess. I think if you're going
1: to put some visceral content in your art, you should kind of, obviously, a lot of people will have different opinions about the subjective um, harm and good of, of different things. But I think that if you want to achieve some sort of good with the art that you're doing, that you're going to risk by putting in some sort of questionable or potential traumatizing content, you have to make it very clear in the story what was what was meant by this. And and I think, you know, you could hear the um, counter argument. Well, you know, sometimes violence, you know, it doesn't mean anything in the real world. But, you know, we're reading stories to escape the real world. So help us understand the way that the world should be or at least warn us that the world shouldn't be this way. And maybe maybe I've st- stumbled across what was meant by this is that, you know, we maybe shouldn't be exploring too de- dangerously into these different realms of what the world could be if we continue down these paths with our technology, because it could, you know, become this, this, um, landscape of, you know, this kind of trauma where these sorts of things are possible. I don't, I don't know, but just, you know, think about the way that different people with different life experiences could react to the things that you're writing would be, would be my advice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, obviously it's a highly successful book and I think it was published in the early two thousands, right? Is that true so that was that was kind of before like the Me Too thing was was mainstream. And I I'm gonna be honest with you, like just reading as a child and and growing up um in high school and reading a lot of fantasy, I thought it was just part of the fantasy genre to like include like, you know, like women's sexuality is something that is taking advantage of, you know? And like, unfortunately I had a run of, of, of reading a bunch of really misogynistic books in, in, in even more ways than what what this was. I mean, it it was one scene and I mean, there was one book I read where like the culture is implied that it's like, it's very promiscuous. So at the end of the novel and like a rival army comes in and like all the women are, or violated in that culture. And it's, it's heavily implied or explicitly stated that it's because they were that way. They were sexually promiscuous. And it's like, why would you even do that? So I was really lucky early on in my career at Seton Hill. I had a couple of really great mentors who were like, no, like this is not part of this genre conversation well, also that it you know? doesn't
1: have to be part of this genre conversation. Um, right. I think that there are some problematic, um, tropes in noir fiction, um, which have that kind of male gazey, you know, misogyny mm-hmm. as well or that like oh all the women are super hot. It's like are they though? Like they're all this like ideal yeah. body to I don't know about that. Um and that also like later in this book there's a scene where the stereotypical male female detective is super angry with Kovac because he did this really stupid thing, and she's super mad at him for good reason, and it's a point of conflict. And then they suddenly just start having wild sex, and the conflict is n- never resolved. It was just oh, she only brought this up because it got them to the super angry point, and it's like, and then and then they're okay after that. It's like that. I I pray to God no one uses this book in their romantic life, or that is that does, that
0: does it's, not line up with my. <laughs> My experience of arguing and sex, honestly.
1: Like. Um, so uh, you know, before we get uh, too deep into this conversation though, because I see we're already, you know, twenty two minutes in, um, Yeah. we should probably pause for our, our five hundred words analysis of the beginning of this story before oh, we talk about some yeah. the broader themes. Uh, I
0: have I have that right here. Yes, yes, yes. I also I mean I I don't wanna like I don't wanna like Called a cancel, Richard K Morgan. I mean, like it's it's clear it, it happened, and it's like there are a lot of good things about the book and how it it works and how it functions. It's just you know we've kind of moved on and evolved culturally. So. I think
1: we couldn't have this conversation uh, without addressing those things, uh, while yeah, also recognizing for sure. the talent of this author and the success of this book.
0: Yeah, and I mean this was a really great um, first 500 words. I mean, it's pretty well balanced. One thing that really stuck out to me is that the plot of the story, like the Bancroft plot, plot, it doesn't come in until chapter two. So like, that was really interesting to me because like, like other noir novels that I've read and other detective novels that I've read in the big sleep by Raymond Chandler, he's walking into this guy's mansion to get his, his, his assignment to like, like to hear about his case. I don't know how many like Harry Dresden stories start with a young woman or someone coming into his office to contract him. You know, this story, I mean, it starts with a prologue. I mean, I, I, I didn't do the 500 word thing on the prologue because I think that we're trying to help writers get better. And like most I've, I've heard anyway, most agents, they won't really consider a prologue. They want to see chapter one. So I've done this with chapter one and not the prologue. So it starts with the line coming back from the dead can be rough. And then it goes all the way to um, when he wakes up and he's coughing out all the gunk, and it's uh, the male nurse or whatever, like the the text says. So much for training. It was a hard male voice that sort of habitually hangs around Joseph's uh, facilities. What do they teach you in the envoys anyway, Kovach? That's where I stopped. That was five hundred and thirty-six words. I kind of broke down our gold standard a little bit more. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but up, it's going to be posted on our Patreon, and we're going to make a less in-depth version available to everybody as well. but in total, characterization accounted for 30.5% of this. Plot and conflict only was 16% and that was more f- uh, foreshadowing than anything, um, which I marked as a part of a gold standard quote, which was uh, the big paragraph that starts with "Don't worry,' don't worry, they'll store it. And I marked that one in gold because it does a bunch of things. It speaks directly to the reader. And, and communicates the character's voice, the brokenness of the world, the description of the process. It has idiomatic speech, character opinions. You really can't ask for a passage to do more than that. So that was uh, from Don't Worry, They'll Store It to If You Have Time on the first page. All incidences of description, uh, Richard K. Morgan is a very description heavy writer, I've noticed. Uh, 431 words or 80% of the total words in the document um, was had something to do with describing the world or the situation or the character. And I started tracking a new thing, um, incidences of the world being revealed, which is 194 words or 36% of the total words. So just to kind of sum up um, on the highest level, Richard Morgan's a highly descriptive writer, and his prose appears to do a lot of things at once. Most passages highlighted do two or more things at the same time, which is what we're looking for, Um, like reveal character worldview while revealing something about the setting or describe a place, while also keying the reader into the fact that we're clearly operating in a cyberpunk world. The main story conflict is only hinted at extremely vaguely uh, via foreshadowing than anything else. This appears to fly in the face of con- of conventional story wisdom as most, as most young writers are taught to reveal at least a shadow of the plot within the first few pages. Kovach doesn't get his letter until chapter 2 or page 25 in my edition of the novel. Instead, he relies on the world and its particulars, his own vivid prose and the mystery that the reader feels of who is this person and why was he resurrected? Ultimately, I believe the first act of this novel is pretty masterful. I mean, it it does a lot of great things. I enjoyed the first half of this book immensely. I got a little confused around the second half, um, but we can kind of talk about that yeah. in a second. I
1: think what we should all look at this book as, and, and first I'll pause to say I'm very excited to when we have a lot more instances of books that we've conducted these analytics on, because I think we could look at books overall and the average percentages that is dedicated to each of these areas that you're talking about. And then- I don't know if five is a statistically representative example for the number of each books that we have in each broad shelf genre. But it would be interesting to to break it down and and start looking at it by that. Um, but I would say that when you're examining this book as someone who wants to write really good books, this is a fantastic example of a book that is high concept. And so by that I mean the heart of this book, more so than the plot, because most of the books like the heart is the plot, what happens, the main story problem. But for this book, it's and, and I think it's more common in cyberpunk, it is what does the world look like given this intense technological advance? And in this book, it's this whole idea of we can move our consciousness between bodies. And so with this book, we really see how does this affect the rich, the poor, the religious? You know, Richard Craig Morgan, he answers all of these questions. What is death? Um, there's a really great um, sequence in the book where someone explains to Kobach that most people die after their second fully aged leave because most people don't want to go through the aging process after they've already done it once. So before they grow old, they experience real death the second time, unless they are very rich, like the Bancrofts, and then they just move from body to body. But then that creates a whole other social uh, construct, which is this idea of a meth, a Methuselah, someone who's very, very old and super rich, and they're hated for that in, in, in some other circumstances. Um, and then what's also interesting and, and, and what's really crucial about this idea of a high concept is that it's not just something that kind of happens in the background of the book. The different questions, the whys, the what ifs of the high concept are integral to the plot. So if you have computers, and we all know computers can make copies of files can you make copies of a stack? Can you put that stack in two different places? Turns out, yes. What does that look like for the, the events of this book? How do we use that well? And is that illegal? Of course it is. But are we going to do it anyway? Obviously. And, and then finally, I'll just add one more thing. Um, what's the kryptonite? Because Lawrence Bancroft is, is you know, the, the unique situation, the unique, you know, ask in the beginning of the book, he's asking Kovacs to solve his murder. Because someone murdered him, and obviously right. he's back because he has this automatic backup system. Of course there's a copy of his consciousness that can be downloaded and put into a new body. But meths have yeah. to die also how, and that's how we have the introduction late in the book of, of the Rawlings virus. So it's, it's a fantastic example of if you're going to create a whole new world, what are all the different things that you have to think about, and then how do you make them integral to the story itself?
0: I would have liked to see the virus foreshadowed a little bit more personally. Is it Jimmy DeSoto? Is that his name? Was he infected with it? I think that like he was or something, but that's what I mean. The second half of the book, it's, oh, eh. it, and I'm, I might have to read it again, but it seemed like a lot of stuff was introduced in the second half that maybe should have been foreshadowed a little bit stronger in the first. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think so. I I do feel that the second half of the book kind of um, meanders compared to the first half, because the first half, I would say, is very formulaic in that um, it follows the maxims of a noir novel in that he he receives his mission and then he mysteriously gets the crap beat out of him which makes him realize that things are more intense than he realized broken yeah noses. the broken noses um and then there's the femme fatale who comes to seduce him to further lead him astray um and you know then he gets captured and so the stakes rise and then he realizes that he's in the body of the woman uh the, the female detective's ex-boyfriend and so things complicate and now he's kind of on their team um, but then I think it doesn't meet the full arc, but I also haven't read the further books. You know, there's additional sequels to this. So I think there's, there's a lot in this world that can be pulled out. Um, But I will, you know, just to kind of reiterate the fact that what's most masterful about this book is its world building and, and it's, and it's details. So like when Kovacs writes, he's so confused because he's writing in someone else's handwriting, you know, those muscle memories are still there because there's a big difference between the mind he has and the body he's using. Um, There's some fantastic examples of foreshadowing. So when Ortega drops him off at Bancroft's house in the beginning of the book, she gives him cigarettes. And he's like, what? You might miss it. I only noticed that the second time I read the book because Riker is a smoker. That's Riker's body. He doesn't know that yet, but she does. Riker, you know, was her boyfriend. And, you know, he starts feeling the twinge for a cigarette because the body he has, it was a smoker's body, even though his mind is not a smoker's mind. So it's, there's just, you know, some really fantastic examples of of world building, which is why I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about why this is a great example of a noir novel, but overall it's a sci-fi novel through and through. and, And I think those are just the great examples of that.
0: I think that undoubtedly it is in the noir tradition um, you know, you have the hero at the mercy of the villain scene. He's immobilized by his own kind of, he almost brings about his own undoing with the, uh, with the drug that he injects into himself to get past the security system when he tries to assassinate Kalahara. And when he's immobilized, I mean, all of his power is taken away, you know, and it's a last ditch effort that he, he succeeds. So like, it's interesting. I'd say that it's a hard boiled noir novel, like that's wrapped up in the cyberpunk aesthetic, which is like, Excellent. Like it's well done, definitely. I kind of want to speculate a little bit. I, I feel like he could have gone a couple different ways with this. And I, I kind of want to ask him if he had considered it in a different genre. Like it could have been a military science fiction if a team of envoys were on the Bancroft case, or it could be a police procedural if Ortega was written as the protagonist, you know?
1: Yeah, I love those examples because those are just different ways to illustrate how this book could fall into different genres just based on the expectations and what would appeal most to those different groups of readers. Yeah. And
0: it's kind of like shows the versatility of the aesthetic genres of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Like you can, you can meld those pretty easily. I mean, we have noir, but we also have cyberpunk and hard boiled and a vague military SF. I mean, he kind of has his own posse, but they're all dead, you know, in the end I'd categorize this as like a soft science fiction, cyberpunk, noir, hard boiled detective novel with vague military SFs of stuff like it kind of speaks to we talked
1: yeah. that's great put that <laughs> in your pitch it'll roll off the tongue yeah. really But it, well it does it kind of speaks to
0: <laughs> my friend who works for publishers weekly before where he talked about he wanted to see more utopias but he also says that the future of fiction is is not pure genre it's not like a pure fantasy novel it's these hybrid sorts of novels and we see that here and i think that richard k morgan was kind of on the cutting edge of that and i mean this was early 2000s and you know, we're starting to see more and more of that nowadays. I think
1: definitely. So to kind of wrap us up, um, you had a really great point um, when we were kind of talking before we started recording about the theme of this book oh, yeah. made possible through the fact that it is part of the science fiction genre. You're talking
0: about the concept of the self. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, that didn't really come in until I mean, it, it didn't I didn't fully realize that that part of the theme until the very end. But it reminded me at first of. And Kathleen, you're going to murder me because I'm going to bring up another Good Place episode.
1: Well, it's funny. Better that. I mean, you didn't murder me when we realized the first time we recorded this episode. I hadn't pushed play. So speaking I think of that, we'll be did okay. you push record this time? Are we still good? I, I did. All right, uh, we're, we're good. Okay. <laughs>
0: um, but there's a there's an episode of the Good Place where they all I have to explain the whole whole concept. But basically, just just high level, like they've been tortured for a thousand years and each time they figured out they're tortured, they're like rebooted. So there's like 600 different versions of themselves. The main character finds out she was in love with a secondary character and he says, well, that's not me. That was somebody else. Um, And he references uh, Derek Parfait or Parfait. I don't remember exactly how to say it, but who was a reductionist and that reductionists believe that since there is no adequate criterion of personal identity, people do not exist apart from their components. He argued that reality can be fully described impersonally. There need not be a determinate answer to the question, will I continue to exist? We could all know the facts about a person's continued existence and not be able to say whether or not the person has survived. He concluded that we are mistaken in assuming that the personal identity is what matters in survival. What matters is rather psychological connectiveness, which is... Namely, a memory and character and continuity, which is overlapping chains of strong connectedness. So his whole thing is that individuals are nothing more than brains and bodies, but identity requires both. They can't be reduced to either thing.
1: Yeah. And if I could add that, that kind of also ties back to this fantastic K-Series right article where she says that one of the key tenets of cyberpunk is that in it, life is prolonged usually in these future societies, but usually at the cost of its devaluation. We kind of
0: uh, see that with, with with Bancroft at first, for sure, um, because he's lived for like a, a billion years. Um, but also when Kovach resleeves himself, I'm sorry, when he double sleeves, they kind of do a coin toss to see who gets to survive because you can't have two of yourself walking around, right? Um, that's illegal. At the end of the book, his sleeve that went to be with, with Miriam Bancroft to distract her, asks him to leave her out of the the case, essentially, to, to protect her. And he doesn't actually know why, right? And so it kind of brings up the question... Oh, and I'm sorry, and I have to, I'll, I'll also have to talk about, like, with Bancroft, he was drugged, I think, and then killed the prostitute and then killed himself out of remorse. Is that kind of what happened?
1: Yes. Um, and I also think that um, he was trying to, basically, he he knew that if he killed his, this instance of himself, he would get the 48-hour re-upload and he would have no memory of this incident happening. So he did commit suicide. Sorry, there's the end right. of the book. Spoiled.
0: <laughs> uh, well, there you go. Um, but it, it asked the question, like, are our memories who we are? And Are our memories what make us a person, right? Um, Bancroft doesn't remember killing the prostitute in his other sleeve. Did he actually do it? Should he be held accountable? It brings up the problem of punishment and justice, especially in like a legal system. For example, if we were to double sleeve or even to make it more fun, if we were to clone ourselves, right? And we sleeved into two identical clone bodies and those clones were dropped on opposite points of the world. Which one is you? The you who was single, you know, who was not cloned and resleeved would cease to exist. And instead you'd become two separate entities who share the same DNA. So which one is you, you know? Um,
1: right. And then are you responsible if one of, is the other responsible if one commits a crime? Right.
0: And I think that um, I personally, I just thinking about that, I kind of, and I'm, I might change my opinion on this later if I think about it more, but I argue here that the concept of self is in constant flux, right? We're all different than who we were five minutes ago. We change based on our stimuli, right? The question, I think, shouldn't be who am I now, but instead who am I becoming? and Do my choices reflect the type of person I believe myself to be, you know?
1: Something that you said before that I absolutely loved because this is my favorite genre is that you said sci-fi is not as quest-based as fantasy. Um, And I think that, you know, there's a, there's a, it seems to be that some of these um, genre fiction categories are looked down on, but, we could only explore these ideas that you're talking about through the lens of speculative science fiction.
0: Yeah. And actually, uh, David Parfait, Parfait, uh, he actually uses like Star Trek to illustrate his points in some of his his arguments because he's like, well, just because we haven't advanced this far doesn't mean we shouldn't speculate. Yeah.
1: I love that you mentioned Star Trek because my fiance told me after listening to um, all of the episodes of our podcast, because that's the kind of person he is, you know <laughs> that um, Star Trek was actually invented to be the utopian science fiction. <laughs> did know that, but they
0: are democratic socialists. <laughs>
1: Wonderful. <laughs> so before we wrap up here, I just want to point out one more thing that I thought was maybe a little bit of a plot hole, um, and I think I only mentioned this on our on our first recording, um, but that of course the version of prison when you can, um, you know disengage the consciousness from the body is that you put the consciousness you know which is on a computer away for a hundred or however many decades or centuries um and so Kovac he's been away for over a hundred years but then when he returns the technology of the world is not any different he comes to a new place where things work a little bit differently but the implication of that is that in the past hundred years I mean just think where we were as a society hundred years ago we're kind of um you know advancing at an exponential rate. So the world has not evolved. The technology has not evolved within the past 100 years or more. Or, you know, Lorenz Bancroft doesn't really comment on, you know, back in my day, you know, even though he's like, you know, centuries old. uh, That kind of implies that this is the final stage of humanity, which is a little scary.
0: I think that as as we go through like our progression of technology, like we've seen a huge explosion from 1980 until now, right? If you were to pull even somebody off the street of 1990 and say, "Hey, by the way, in 2021, here's what we will be technologically," they wouldn't believe you, you know. Um, but or they
1: would think we should be much further ahead. They're like, "We're not on Mars yet," right,
0: right. But I think that like we're kind of in that stage now where like we've made a lot, a lot of um, progress in the virtual world, but we haven't really made that much progress. M- medically we're still trying to solve the biggest questions like when can we cure cancer i'd really appreciate it that we could do that or alzheimer's or parkinson's you know so it's just interesting like we've been trying to do the same thing for so long and made so, so much other progress in other aspects of our culture and society so it's it doesn't seem i mean like 100 years is a long time i'll, I'll grant you that you know <laughs> Um, yeah. but it wasn't, it didn't set off my alarm bells as, as hard. Cause once I think once you get that far into the future, like what more can you do after you can needle cast someone to a whole yeah. other planet, you know?
1: Yeah. I think it's, um, I'll, I'll paraphrase and I'll probably butcher like the uh, beliefs held by Elon Musk where he thinks, okay, if you're so afraid that, you know, we'll just be consciousness ins- inside of a computer and that's scaring you. He's like, we're already there. It's just a slower input. You just have to type into the computer. You just have to type into your phone. If, like, I mean, I just put in internet inside my new house. If I didn't put in internet, would I feel like a whole person? If I couldn't talk to anyone online, I certainly wouldn't be able to do my job. Like, what would I have? That's true. So think about that as you fall asleep tonight. (laughs) This has been The Archetypist.
0: You've been listening to The Archetypist. If you'd like to support us, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com/slash archetypist. Upcoming episodes will explore the Martian by Andy Ware and a Memory Called Empire by Arcade Martin. To follow along with the rest of our book lists, search Archetypists on Goodreads under the People tab. For updates, content, polls, and to follow along with Kathleen and Jacob's writing journeys, you can find us on Twitter at Archetypist Podcast, or on Instagram under the same tag. For questions, advertising inquiries, or to schedule author interviews, please email us at archetypistpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, stay positive. Stay Stay safe and stay connected. Archetypists, out.